Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we will replace your ignorance with knowledge from suitable donors who are us. I'm Mia. And I'm Salem. And today we're talking about organ transplants. How did they happen? What challenges have we faced? And what challenges are yet to come? But before we dig into all of that, how have you been? I've been good. I just finished uh, the school year, had my last exam on Friday. Big um, exam? Big exam. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, it's real, relieving to finish the school year. I'm starting a new job on Tuesday. Fun. It's, a, it's in a lab working with um, cancer immunology. So that's really exciting. How have you been? It's been good. Uh, the studio space I talked about last time didn't work out, unfortunately. Probably still going to use it for some special projects, though. Um, but otherwise, I have also had a big project with my damn video. I talk about videos every time, but like my videos are big projects. So that is what I do. Mm-hmm. I have done nothing else. So why did the studio uh, not work out? It just didn't work out. The vibes were off. You know when you get into a space and you're like, okay, I can work in here. And then you start to work and you're like, no. No, I can't. It doesn't, <laughs> Most doesn't work. Most vague description I've ever heard. The vibes were off. Are you going on vibes now? Yeah, we're going on vibes. Well, okay. The, the, okay. Well, the lighting didn't really work the way I wanted to. It was dusty. It was dusty. It was a little dusty. Mm, I'm sorry. I don't mind the dust usually. I live in dust, but um, <laughs> you're like a mite. I am a mite. I love I love dust, but I don't mind. But it's uh, the lighting vibes were off, work. and also the fact that it took like it took me a long time to get there. Mm. I like was carrying all my like fucking supplies mm-hmm. halfway across Stockholm, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was the like that was two, three buses, two trains. Like, it's a lot of work. That's what I told you when you told me about the studio. I was I like, know. "How are you gonna take all your shit over there?" Like, now I remember you were like, "I'm gonna wake up at seven every day, and I'm gonna go there, and I'm gonna have my workspace." And I was like, "Are you?" <laughs> I mean, it worked. You know, like if the vibes had been right when I got there, yeah, I think it would have been great. I think if the vibes had been good, it would have been worth the trip. But the vibes weren't good, weren't good. So it's not worth it. Yeah. Like it, it, at that point, it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to go home and record at home instead. Yeah. Um, so that's what I've been doing. Cool. <laughs> uh, but before we cut out the kidney that is this episode, we, of course, want to thank our patrons. Uh, our patrons make it so that we can keep the show running and make it worth it for us to do. It's good, it's good stuff. Patrons get access to episodes a month early. So if you're into this podcast and just crave more fresh, uh, visceral content, uh, you can sign up to our patron. Patrons, pa- patrons also get access to the video um, version of the episodes, so you can see us, uh, see our faces. As, as we try to as we desperately try- <laughs> be funny on this podcast. <laughs> um, this month we have one special patron to thank, and that is Emily Formanek. Thank you, Emily, for supporting us, for supporting this podcast, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. And with that said, let us cut open this episode and see what we find. All right, I'm going to give an overview of organ transplantation. Uh, This section is going to be a little bit shorter because I feel like we all kind of know what organ transplantation is. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, you take an organ from a person and you put it in another person who needs it. Stick it into someone else. That's about all there is to it. Um, (laughs) There are a few different types of organ transplantation. There are autografts, meaning tissues that were taken from the same person's body. There are allografts, which is when two different people are involved. Um, and xenografts, which is the transplant of tissues from one species to another. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk a bit about that. Me too. There's some gazelles involved. Gazelles? There's gazelles involved in this. I'm mostly going to be talking about pigs and uh, chimps. Fun. Fun. At this time, organs that have been successfully transplanted include the heart, kidneys, liver, lungs, pancreas, intestine, thymus, and uterus. The donors may be living, brain dead, or dead via circulatory death. A major challenge in the field of organ transplantation remains the disproportion between the supply of organs and the number of people who need organs. Mm -hmm. Some of the ways to handle this problem include donation after cardiac death, the use of machine perfusion for the preservation of grafts, and the use of living donors. So now that we have like a little bit of an overview over organ transplantation, I'm going to give the word to you. You're going to tell us about the history of transplantation up until the 1960s. And then I'll take over. And then you will tell us about ethics. And then I will do what I do best and talk about the future of transplantation. And it's going to be, it's going to be a, a thicky. A thicky. <laughs> a thicky section. All right. Because uh, I have a lot to say. Okay. But the word goes to you now. Very well. So before we get into the history of putting a body part into another person, I want to give a quick history about how we know about body parts at all. And some early attempts at like messing around with organs. Fucking uh, around and finding out. Fucking around and finding out with organs. During most of European and Middle Eastern history, dissection of human bodies was not something like favorably seen. Um, and this has gone back to like pre-Roman times. So this is not like a Christian thing. This is not a like an Islam thing. This is this is just a cultural thing that has been around for much longer than these religions have been. Uh, the ancient Greeks didn't like it and it was generally frowned upon there too. But there would be some centers of knowledge that did allow it, usually because the king was like, no, we need to know. We like we I know we don't like it, <laughs> but we do need to know what goes on in there. What happens in there, we don't know. Unfortunately, a lot of the documents from those centers haven't survived. And from those that did survive, it doesn't seem like they produced any like significant knowledge in the realm of transplantation. Although like basic knowledge about like the heart powers blood, that kind of stuff that they did figure out. Instead, early doctors had to work on other animals. Galen, who we know and uh, maybe like, sometimes hate, for example, dissected dead macaque monkeys, assuming that our physiology were basically the same and adapting his knowledge based on injuries from people. In the 12th century and forwards though, Dissection became a bit more popular under Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who we mentioned in a previous episode about drugs and doctor regulation. Uh, well, he also did corpse regulation and decreed that anyone wanting to be a doctor had to attend at least one human dissection before being certified, and that there would be at least one of these in the empire every five years. That's not really often. They only had one dissection in the empire every five years. At least one. Every yeah. five years, okay. and, the, and the idea was that, like, if you want, if you were a doctor and wanted to get certified, you had to, you attend. Had to attend at least one of them. Because he he said that, like, you need to have a basic understanding about human physiology if you're going to treat it, if you're going to take care of it. Was that? But but at this time, they were still dissecting corpses, right? Like on the low, on the, <laughs> on the down low, they, they they were attending many more dissections. Uh, on the down low, uh, occasionally there would be. Some. The, the, this is like when it starts, kind yeah, of. Yeah. Um, Frederick II sort of like has one system of doing it and it, it sparks an interest, so mm -hmm. to say. But at, in the 13th and 14th centuries, that's when sort of like clubs of doctors start like 
snatching bodies occasionally mm-hmm. and like do, having their own little dissection clubs mm-hmm. um, because once every five years it's not even nearly yeah. enough yeah but you know that th- th- this this kind of sparks an interest in that so uh, it becomes more in the down low later which we talked about a little bit in our corpse snatching episode mm-hmm. Halloween. our Halloween spe- special yeah it's a good one but ever since uh, they started like cutting up bodies a little bit knowledge about the human body began to improve and after this interest in wanting to replace body parts grew, but it had always existed even before basic knowledge in myth and legend. And I want to talk a little bit about some transplant myth and legend. Now, the earliest account of any transplantation is of a Chinese doctor named Fin Shi Ao in 400 BCE, who reportedly switched the hearts of two people who were opposites of each other in character and will, hoping to balance them out. This is probably not a real story, but I really like the story. One man was strong of character, but weak in will. The other mm-hmm. one uh, was strong in will, but weak in character. So if, if he switched the hearts, they would be two balanced individuals. What's the difference between will and character? God, I have no idea. <laughs> like, it, ma- it matters in some, like, Chinese philosophy mm-hmm. thing. Like, character and will are really important in, like, BCE Chinese philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I... I, sw- I, sw- I never really got it. It was really important in my history bachelor's class. Never really understood it. Because <laughs> it also influences, like, a bureaucrat can't be, like, a good bureaucrat if he has, like, be- poor will. And it, it mandates their entire political system, too. Like, the mandate of heaven is, is basically this, but in, in, in supercharge. So the idea, well, this is not, has nothing to do with the medic- medicine history, but it's interesting if nothing else. In, uh, in ancient Chinese history, the mandate of heaven... It's not that ancient, actually. It's this idea that the, that the emperor has to have the mandate of heaven in order to be a good emperor. And that means that like, if everything's going fine, if everything's good, the economy's good, people are healthy, it's peace in the land, that means that the, that the emperor has the mandate of heaven. Which means, well, we can't go against the emperor because the hev- heaven is on his side. But if things are going badly, like there are bandits roaming the land, harvests are going poorly, everything's like, kind of shitty, uh, then he doesn't have the mandate of heaven. And that means it's okay to basically revolt against the king. I mean, I get that, but what does that have to do with character and will? <laughs> because it, because uh, the idea is that like the emperor is more likely to have the mandate of heaven if he has good character and good will. Oh. And, and if he is balanced in those things. So not only... Because in, in European... What like, interesting feudal, philosophy. <laughs> I know, because in European like uh, feudal history, uh, the, the, king are, the king are like appointed by God. So no, whatever the king does, it's fine because the god appointed him, even if the king is bad. Mm-hmm. But in Chinese philosophy, if the king is bad, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like, like he's not appointed by God. We can we can kill him. It's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. It's morally okay to do so. Yeah. Which is uh, which is very different. Which is um, one reason why China was very very stable during times when things were good and very unstable when things were bad. So nothing to do with med- medical history, but I think it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, the second uh, mythical story, though, is about the miracle of the black leg, which is uh, an interesting story in which two Catholic saints, Damien and Cosmas, the two bros, helped a man (laughs) who had a gangrenous leg by transplanting the leg of an Ethiopian who had recently died instead. This story is apparently taken for truth among many surgeons, because a lot of the sources that I found talked about, like, can we stop believing this? Obviously, this isn't true. No historians believe this. Why do leg surgeons believe that this is true? Come on. And it's also a story about how 
like a very early history of like how white medicine deals with black bodies because there are some tapestries that like depicted everything and everything it's very sort of like you're taking like healthy flesh from a black man like putting it on a, on a, on a sick white man and, and they because they're also switching the legs like the gangrenous white leg is like attached to the black man and buried with him it is it's it's this weird sort of like value equivalence of like it's okay to sort of like attach the sick to to the black man and like attach the healthy to the to the white it's 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 a, it's a very sort of like pre like like before concepts of like white and black were fully like established as race factors it's, it's an interesting sort of like proto story about like you know black bodies in history but transplants have been like as part of like cultural consciousness in humanity for a long time like we've been wanting to do it mm-hmm. even if it we may not have done it but with those myths like told let's talk about the actual sort of history like we things we know have happened uh, and before we talk about like the the story of like how we went into like modern like flesh transplantation we need to talk about eyes we have eyes we love eyes very fun organs to have that's why we have two of them and corneas are very important too for the eye to work. And they're very important in the history of transplants as well. Now, we've known about how eyes work since ancient times and that eyes have corneas and that the corneas are important. And we also know that corneas can break, get scarred, get scratched and so on and might need replacing or can harm vision if they get damaged too much. Um, I've had a scratched cornea. It was the most painful experience <laughs> of my entire life. I'm, so- not, I'm not kidding. It was, I've never felt so much pain in my life. And mm-hmm. I had it for a week. Oh, what did you do about it? Did you go to the hospital? I had to go to the eye hospital. And <laughs> the eye they hospital? They have an eye hospital, yeah, in Stockholm. I had to go there. And they... I went in a taxi. Because that's where, how they sent me from the from the emergency room occasionally. Because the emergency room can't deal with it. They had to send me to the specialist. Um, and they had, like, these weird eye drops that completely numb pain. I think they were just straight heroin. <laughs> um, but apparently, you can't take it too much because if you take to it, when when it's active it's not healing like why have a painkiller that just <laughs> stops healing because i can just because okay I, then i have to be in pain to be healed mm-hmm. it was awful and i had to like rubbing cream every single day it was how do they nightmare. actually how do they actually fix it a cream my eye my my body fixes it itself mm, okay um but uh, i don't think it was too deep if it, if it had been too deep and like actually like cracked the cornea <gasps> Oh. Uh, they would have removed. My, they would have had to remove my cornea entirely. That was again horrible experience. Scary. How did you actually? <laughs> how do, I'm so interested in this. So the story is okay. The, the awful story is like two of my friends were sick, so I went over to them and I brought them some food and I want. I made sure that they had like they had food, they had supplies to like last them because they couldn't leave their their apartment. I got an eye infection mm-hmm. in both of my eyes after having visited them. Eye infection bad on its own right mm-hmm. um but you know not the worst thing you can you can deal with it um scratchy eyes though so you know you scratch your eyes it'll occasionally a little bit like you get itchy eyes it itches and i scratched one of my eyes so had to um, like nail first or what no i don't i don't know it just i, I, don't, I have no idea how it happened uh, that's so interesting i and woke terrifying. up one day and just like my eye fucking just hurts and i, and I kept getting like pus in my eye um, and yeah, I had, I had to abort a date in order to go to the, ho- to the emergency hospital. I had to ask my date's mom to take me to the emergency room on her way to work. Oh my God. So 
So I had to sit there and just like, uh, 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 oh in the God. car with my date's mom. It was awful. Was that in high school? No, this was uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of years ago. It was awful. I don't recommend it. Again, most painful experience of my entire fucking That's life. That's really funny. It's, uh, well, funny to talk about now. <laughs> anyway, corneas. <laughs> Because we know how corneas work, this has led people in ancient times to want to perform transplants of corneas, but unfortunately with little experimentation or documentation. But strangely enough, in 1835, we have our first case of a transplant between two living animals of the same species. At all. First ever allo transplantation, and the story about it is a bit bonkers. Because it's not between two humans, it's between two gazelles. Irish surgeon Samuel Bigger was traveling in Egypt at the time, and he was captured by Bedouins during a war. And during captivity, he, using instruments he just happened to have with him, helped a pet gazelle owned by one of the Bedouins. Because the gazelle was almost blind due to a corneal tear, and by using the cornea of another gazelle, he managed to restore vision. He didn't understand that this was a major scientific advancement in medicine. But another doctor, Richard Kissam, in New York, tried to... Why do all these people have the funniest names? Like Bigger Kissam. Kissam. <laughs> Dick, Dick Kissam. Richard Kissam, Dick Kissam, in New York, tried to attempt a, tra- a xenotransplant in 1838 uh, because he was inspired by this gazelle story. He realized that, like, oh... You can transplant you, you corneas? You can do that? Yeah. The donor was a pig. And initially the patient, a young Irishman, had some restored light vision. But after a week of, like, some slight improvement... It had gone. It did not work. It took until 1905 until a man called Eduard Zerm managed to perform the first successful cornea transplant in Prague, which he managed because antiseptic science had advanced far enough to properly clean a cornea well enough that it would attach properly. Apparently, like the big innovation that he did was that the donor eye, because it was it was donated by a boy who had like his eye removed because he had like accidentally gotten stabbed in the eye. The, the entire eye had been like soaking in antiseptic fluid, which meant that it was a lot easier to sort of remove with all of the like bits attached that you need for the cornea and like transplant it a little easier. And that is the first sort of like human-human technically like organ, organ transplant. transplant. Yeah. Because uh, it is an organ. But the more proper like organ transplant with like flesh and guts begins with skin grafts. Now we've talked about skin grafts uh, before on our episode of Plastic Surgery. And in that episode, we talked about a method of facial reconstruction where you take a piece of living skin and you pull it over a part you want to heal and then you let the body sort of like heal it together on its own as a sort of like tube, skin tube situation. This obviously has some advantages over a transplant, mainly that tissue rejection isn't an issue. It is your own body after all and still attached to your own body, it just needs to heal, so it's a lot safer. A transplant works on a similar principle, but there's no connection to healthy tissue. Meaning, the skin had to be 100% disconnected from the circulatory system and then reconnected. And that's a lot more difficult, especially when it's from another person. There are a few accounts of early transplants, mainly from India, because they were already doing a lot of plastic surgery uh, without transplants, but they did experiment. According to some sources, the Indian doctor Shushruta attempted to perform a transplant in his lifetime. Now, Shushruta is known as the father of surgery, and he innovated a lot of techniques in the 5th century BCE, but the success or even existence of these tests are hard to verify. 
Wikipedia straight up lies on this one. I had to look at, like a lot on like around for how this fucking works because Wikipedia. I ranted about this on Twitter. Wikipedia claims that Shushurta did this in the second century BCE. No source mentioned, hmm. uh, and Shushurta was had been dead for three hundred years at that point. Yeah. So it's it's physically impossible. I I love Wikipedia, but you gotta you gotta be so like careful. You, you gotta ch- you, you gotta, gotta be on guard. Everything you gotta be on guard, like whenever you read an article, because it's so it's so fucking easy to like miss. Also, mm-hmm. like you'll be reading a really good article, like, and you'll take it for granted. Yeah, you have to like sense, and you'll just trust like, it. Yeah, because I remember reading that and just like I, I, there was like some part deep in my brain from when we did the plastic surgery episode, mm-hmm. and I'm like, hold on, Shushruta, no, <laughs> he was he was dead by then, wasn't he? That's a history of being kicking in, like, as a safeguard. It it just so happens that I, I read that article, too, and it actually didn't stand out to me. Because no. I, don't, I, don't, I don't really remember, like, who lived when. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad I wasn't the one doing this section, because <laughs> maybe I would have fallen for it. Maybe. It's not like, but we I never d- trust Wikipedia. That's yeah. why you never trust yeah. Wikipedia. Like, that's why I like to do the scientific parts, because it's a lot easier to find, like, actual, like, papers about it. Mm-hmm. I, we, I do have to say that we, we don't really, like... Use Wikipedia as like our main source. No, we never do. Like because of this shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there are also some accounts by a French doctor who says that his brother's cousin's subordinate <laughs> got a nose transplant in India after having it being cut off as punishment. Uh, but God knows if that's actually accurate or if it's successful or even a full transplant. Because this is like a letter from the doctor to another person. And the other person who read the letter is like, okay, I got a letter from a doctor saying that his brother's cousin subordinate in India got this. Sources. Welcome to history. It's a mess. Uh, but allegedly, they did it by transplanting a piece of swollen skin from the man's buttocks, which they made swollen by slapping it with an old shoe. So why okay why did why did it have to be swollen to like mimic the what? I I think it would be easier to uh, cut out the subcutaneous fat. Oh okay. I think that the reasoning they had. I so don't they know. beat the shit out of him, <laughs> and then and <laughs> they then they beat the shit out of his butt. They spanked him, yeah. called him a nasty, dirty boy, and then they gave him a nose. <laughs> and allegedly he recovered and did did well. Allegedly. Allegedly, but the first confirmed event happened in 1869 by Swiss surgeon Jacques-Louis Reverdin, who did a full transplant of skin using a pinch method, where you take many small, like tiny skin grafts of the outer layer of the skin and you place it on burned skin. Your skin looks a little bit like Swiss cheese mm-hmm. after, you, after you've taken like skin from it and you, you put it on burned skin. It's not meant to sort of like replace it, but it's meant to help accelerate the healing. Mm, okay. Um, and this method became actually very successful and uh, was developed into more like types of skin grafts. And by just using the outer layer of skin, you reduced the risk of rejection. Uh, and by using the pinch method, because there's so many like tiny localized transplants, even if there is like a complication of like one one little point, just like oh, it's not it's not doing well, you can just remove it and like just keep the ones that. Yeah, work. you don't have to throw the whole thing away. Exactly. Mm. So it's um, it helped. And this helps speed up healing rather than replacing skin, and it's still very interesting, I think. And this was a very common treatment for burns after this discovery, especially up to the First World War. Then they actually tried like other medicines to replace it, mainly tannic acids. Like they rub tannic acid on, on burns, but that apparently causes liver necrosis. So skin grafts reign supreme once again. Uh, during this time, I should also mention that there are like many attempts and improvements uh, to t- transplant science in many different parts of the world as well. 
uh, I'm, I'm telling like a narrative, but there are many other doctors who do important things, and I want to mention really quickly. One doctor named uh, Theodore Kosher began innovating thyroid implants in the 1880s, but that's with tissue and not transplanting a full organ. He, he had managed to like remove a full thyroid without complications and noticed that patients with no thyroid were like ha- they were having symptoms of like low thyroid hormone, whatever it's called. And he figured out that if he, if he like put back like a little bit of thyroid uh, tissue, the symptoms would be lessened. I also want to mention in 1931, the first uterus transplant happened to trans woman Lily Elb, who unfortunately died due to complications because, I mean, I don't, I don't want to like bad talk the surgeon, but like that obviously was not going to work. Mm-hmm. Like you tried, but no. But you, you can transplant uteri now. Now you can. Yeah. But uh, as far as I know, it hasn't happened to trans women yet. Yeah, yeah. I'm and not, I'm not, not in 1931. Yeah. I'm not really sure how it would work with a trans woman. Yeah. But I'm, yeah, you can, you can with cis women. You can do now, yeah. Yeah. Okay, but back to skin grafts. An important case uh, was a pilot in World War II who had burns on 70% of his body due to airplane fuel catching fire, and he was thought to be completely dead due to these injuries. Uh, But he survived after receiving skin grafts performed by a man called Joseph Murray, among others, but he's, he's part of this. The skin grafts were a lot more substantial than anything done before, and he survived with no rejection. Murray, the doctor, thought that the patient's immune system had essentially given up due to him being so close to death. Mm-hmm. And that's why it worked, because they had tried like bigger transplants of skin and rejection had happened. Uh, so Murray tried to set out to figure out like why, why does rejection happen? The immune system is probably part of this, he thinks. And we'll get back to Mr. Murray, Dr. Murray, I guess. Uh, but when talking about the first proper transplant of a full organ, we're talking kidneys. We got two of them. We only need the one. So it's easy to source them more than anything else. Uh, and that's a practical place to start. We tried doing that for a while, too. In 1933, Ukrainian doctor Yuri Voronoi was the first to attempt a kidney transplant, but unfortunately the patient died after two days due to ABO incompatibility, meaning that the blood types don't match up, as well as other issues that like the the kidney didn't have enough oxygen for too long it was was not great people had also tried doing kidney transplants in other parts of the world like boston and chicago but it was generally believed that because of rejection only skin transplants were ever possible that was until 1953 when a man named richard herrick had a disease called chronic nephritis which is kidney inflammation Uh, he was like about to die and it was a very serious case He met Dr. Murray from before, who told him that he had a theory that the immune system was involved and that Richard might survive because he had a twin brother who might be what we today would call a match. They're genetically identical. So, you know, if if, if the immune system is involved, he theorized that they would have the same immune system. I don't think that that's how the immune system works, though. Well, it's not. In actuality. It's not about having the same immune system. It's just that, do you remember talking about antigens yeah. on the surface of cells yeah. if you're genetically identical then those antigens will be the same mm. so then your body won't recognize it as foreign okay mm-hmm. so his, his whole thing about the immune system which is like completely kind of wrong no it, it is correct uh it's it's oh, that of course because that's what influences yeah the, the immune system of the of the person getting the organ will not recognize it mm. as foreign will think it was because the antigens are the same of course mm-hmm. that's a good point <laughs> you're right that's so cool Dr. Murray carefully took a healthy kidney from his brother and transplanted it into Richard Herrick, and it was successful. Worked very fine. Both brothers ended up recovered, 
healthy, lived a long time, and this worked because they were genetically identical. And I think you're going to talk a bit more about like why, like how rejection science works, right? Because we can't always do, not everyone has a twin that you can just harvest organs from. Yeah. So, I mean, what you said about him guessing that the immune system is involved was actually a turning point because he was right. And like you said, not all transplants can be between twins or even from related donors. So then people started thinking about how can we, how can we make sure that there's a like there's enough compatibility between the donor and the person receiving the organ or how do we how do we fix this mm-hmm. issue of the immune system in 1962 dr roy kaln and his team at peter bent brigham hospital published their findings that six mercaptopurin prolonged survival after renal transplant in 104 dogs <laughs> in 104 dogs i love that studies are like very much like we tried once and it worked great Here's a study. Or we tried it in a 104 dogs. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I guess they know it works. Well, it, they they thought it worked on dogs. I think they it's also like with... Well, you know, you can never know. They had a successful experiment in dogs. Yeah. Um, it's just a lot easier to have a bigger sample size when you're working with animals. If it's mm. like when you're working with like humans, like you're lucky to get one person who agrees to do your study. <laughs> if you have dogs or like mice, like... No, yeah, you can just you like know, yeah. mass, mass do that. Murray and his team transitioned Dr. Callan's experiments to human patients in the hospital. He found that chemical suppressants such as zafioprine, actinomycin C, and prednisone improved at least short-term outcomes. And if you're interested in their mechanism of action, zafioprine inhibits purine, which is guanine and adenine synthesis, which leads to lower synthesis of white blood cells. And white blood cells are uh, very important components of the immune system. Mm. So you're basically suppressing the immune system's yeah. action. Like they're, these are like immunosuppressant yeah. medicines. Okay. Mm-hmm. Actinomycin inhibits transcription by binding DNA in the transcription initiation complex. And prednisone is an anti-inflammatory glucocorticoid that works by inhibiting the migration of leukocytes and reversing capillary permeability. Mm. So, I mean, essentially they all suppress the, the immune system, but I just wanted to tell you specifically what, what they do, yeah. just in case you're interested. Yeah. So the availability of these medications led to an expansion of the donor pool. And in 1962, Murray led the first renal transplant between unrelated patients with the use of azafioprine. This was also the first incidence of a successful transplant from a deceased donor. Is this the same Murray? Yeah. Same Murray guy. Same guy. He keeps coming up. I mean, I guess he was a leading figure in uh, organ transplantation science. Between 1963 and 1964, Dr. Keith Riemtsma and his team at Tulane University led six successful xenotransplantations, meaning intraspecies transplants. Specifically, they transplanted chimpanzee kidneys into humans. Oh, God. This was due to a lack of donor organs and the fact that transplantations using cadaveric organs were often unsuccessful. Yeah. And xenotransplantations had been done before. In 1905, a child had received a renal transplant from a rabbit, and in 1923, a human got a transplant from a lamb. However, most xenotransplantations were unsuccessful, with the patients dying within days or the graft forming from bile, which is blood clots. Oh god, that's not good. But this didn't stop Dr. Rimtsma. Tulane University was actually very close to the regional primate center. And uh, the chimpanzees' close taxonomic relationship to humans, the relative, the similar size, the renal function, and their A and O blood types made this approach seem feasible. Yeah. I love that, like, 
They were close. They were close. They were close by. We had chips on hand. I love how that was the first reason that was uh, shown. Like, I guess if they lived close to like a pig factory, they would be like, oh, we'll do pigs. Yeah, exactly. A pig, uh, a pig factory. Uh, whatever. <laughs> a pig farm. And the patients who received the chimpanzee's kidneys lived between 11 days to 9 months post-transplant, which was viewed as a success by the medical community. Some of them showed early signs of suspected rejection, which was treated with increased immunosuppressant medication. <laughs> um, that's kind of funny to me, because I can, I can just imagine them being like, fuck Watch it, it. Just give, give, give them more, like, fuck their immune system up more. <laughs> like, it's fine. No. The patients also got sepsis and acute electrolyte imbalance, and the sepsis was actually the more common reason of lethality. So the so the lack of compatibility was not even like the main reason why a lot of the patients died. Mm. It was the sepsis. Um, but overall, this was considered a success. Doctor Keith. <laughs> no, like the, the despite all of these yeah. issues, great job. Well, I mean, you know, some of them lived up to nine months post-transplant using like animal kidneys. Yeah. So that like for the time, that's, this, yeah, that's was, good. this was pretty good. Dr. Keith uh, Rintzma eventually developed a successful cadaveric organ procurement program and discontinued his xenotransplantation activities. <laughs> uh, but he continued to do some research on the topic. I lie. Yeah. He, I mean, it was it was a messy business. Like, I don't think he really wanted to to work with that. Yeah. Um, I'm also going to talk about this a bit later. But primates are also quite difficult to 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 raise, like, because they're not domestic animals. So yeah. it's really hard to raise them in like proper conditions and in to like make sure they don't get sick. Yeah. They just they get really stressed in controlled environments so working with primates is just a whole mess you know i can imagine um it's not a fun it's not fun that's why history is the superior topic because we did never work with primates <laughs> at the same time a doctor called guy alexander introduced the idea of coma de passe which is what we would today call brain death and brain death if you don't know is a state of irreversible cessation of brain activity including lower brain stem function and that includes spontaneous respiration which means that the patient will die without life support yeah. at this time coma de passe was made possible by artificial ventilation which preserved oxygenation of the patient's organs in 1963 a patient with a severe head injury was brought to the hôpital saint pierre in brussels and despite all resuscitation efforts the patient entered a brain death state Dr. Alexander requested to perform a renal transplant with a kidney from this beating heart donor, and the department chair approved it, which made it the first transplantation from a brain-dead patient. Mm. I <laughs> I have questions about this case. I like that they just snatched it. I know. I, I also like that he asked the department chair, and the department <laughs> chair approved it. Like, did they what ask the, the family? family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like... Okay, like I, I get it, but is that the person that you should ask consent from? Hey boss, I can I can I take his kidney though? Like, sure. I mean, his comatose. Can I just have his kidney? Have it. It's fine. Okay. Cool. I'll do some signs on it. <laughs> yeah, like I. <laughs> you can't do that. I, I don't know about that. Um, maybe he didn't. Maybe they didn't have any family. Maybe. I don't know. It's, it's, it's not. It ain't right. Maybe, I have another yeah. story that's coming up in a bit that's also a little bit oh God. It's a little bit sketchy. I feel uh -huh. like organ transplantation history has a lot of sketchy I, people doing <laughs> sketchy shit. Right. I also have a story about that later. Like they're sketch why are why are organ is it because they get to steal? Do you know why I think it is? Because <laughs> they get to steal they get to steal organs. They're living and I feel their like, body snatching fantasy. I feel like there's a lot of people in the world who like stealing. 
who just like stealing, not because they need it, not because they like have to, they just like taking something. And I feel like organ transplantation, like it's like, oh. I, I, have, a, I have a theory too. There is a stereotype in medicine that surgeons are narcissistic and like a little bit psychopathic. Yes. Um, this is from every surgeon I have met. This is true. <laughs> no offense to you if you're a surgeon. I'm sure there is lots of you out there who are good. But mm -hmm. I have heard that out of all professions, being a surgeon is like the most... Like people who go into surgery are, are people who think very highly of themselves, who mm -hmm. think the rules don't apply to them, who think they're better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I think also this time, you know, because this was a very like new nascent um, field, organ transplantation, and because it's a very, it's very much like one of those things where you kind of like play God a little bit, you know, yeah. you take an organ from, from a person and you put in yeah. another person. You create life like, and you, death at the yeah, same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You take it from like an animal and you put it into, like this is yeah. a Frankenstein shit. Yeah. Um, so I can kind of see how a lot of the people who are doing this thought that they can get away yeah. with a lot of like sketchy shit. Probably. I'm thinking there's a, there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful like talk on, there's a, there's a YouTube video of like a surgeon who's retired mm -hmm. and his granddaughter and they're like, they're drinking or something and like drink or take a shot and they ask each other questions. So in one of those like YouTube shows, in one of the questions she asks her grandfather is, why did you become a surgeon? And he says, uh, well, the answer I give to people is, I like to help people. Uh, the real answer is, I like to cut. <laughs> and ever since I've seen that, it answers so many sort of like question marks in my life whenever I met surgeons. Because like I, when I went to Uppsala University, right, they have they have medical, like, they have doctors and stuff that, like, study there. And they don't study necessarily, like, at Uppsala University, but they're in town. Because mm -hmm. there's a university hospital in the mm -hmm. city. Mm -hmm. um, the medical students are banned from, like, almost every single, like, student bar. Mm -hmm. Because they because they break everything. They party too hard. They, they, they fuck shit up. And the surgeons <laughs> are, like, legendary. Because, like, you don't talk to the surgeons. Don't hang out with the surgeons. Don't bother them. Don't like ask them anything. If they took your table, it's theirs now. Like, <laughs> like don't don't worry about it. They will kill you. They will kill you. They will take your organs to to like play around. Like, I'm sure there are many good surgeons. I wanted to be a surgeon once upon a time. I'm sure if you're a surgeon and you're listening to this, you're probably great. But I also think that if you're a surgeon and listening to this, you know you what know, we're talking about. You know what we're talking about. Yeah, or if you're a physician listening to this, I'm sure you know what we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> Um, okay, so in the late 60s, liver, heart, and lung transplants from deceased donors had been performed successfully. A turning point was the discovery of cyclosporin in the late 1970s, which inhibits the activity of T-cells and which increased long-term survival in transplantation patients. And cyclosporin is one of the most like used medications mm. even today. So this was like a big one. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, because a lot of these are immunosuppressants. How does this... I mean, I don't think you have the answer right now. But like this would obviously have affecting have affected like people during COVID. Yeah, like, people yeah, are, like, absolutely. Yeah, like they're immuno. The they are immunosuppressed. Everyone who's received a transplant, I guess. People who receive a transplant have to take immunosuppressants for the rest of their yeah. lives. So that means that they are forever immunocompromised. Yeah. And this is one of the big reasons why, um, or this is like a, a big limitation of organ transplantation as it is now mm -hmm. that people have to be on these drugs for mm -hmm. the rest of their lives and so we're trying to come up with like 
new ways mm. to maybe make organs, mm -hmm. you know, build them from the patient's own cells mm -hmm. so that so they don't have to like take those uh, drugs. And I'm going to talk about that in the last section, yeah. but it's, it's really, really interesting. In the late 1970s, Dr. Christian Barnard, a South African cardiothoracic surgeon, attempted the world's first heart transplant. South African law regarding patient death was kind of vague, okay. stating that a patient was dead after a physician declared that he is dead. <laughs> if a doctor says you're dead, you're dead. You're dead. If you're if you're a doctor, I'm, al I'm, I'm alive. You're dead. You're dead. <laughs> Give me your liver. One day, the doctor received a 25-year-old patient named Denise Darvell with irreversible head injury, which she received after a car accident, and he declared her brain dead. He detached the ventilator and waited for the electrocardiogram to indicate absence of cardiac output, and then transplanted her heart into a man suffering with diabetes, ischemic heart disease, and heart failure. Some raised the question of whether removing the heart caused the death of the donors. Because he, he did that, actually, a few times after. Oh, my God. Um, apparently, <laughs> he kept doing this. Yeah, he kept doing it. Oh, apparently, you're, you're, you're a little sicky. You Dead. <laughs> oh, oh. oh, my God. Apparently, a month after that first heart transplant, another doctor named Dr. Norman Shumway was performing the first heart transplant in the United States. During the surgery, his chief resident asked him, do you think this is really legal? <laughs> uh, I guess we'll see, he answered. You can't do that. You can't do that. Come on. Because you are, like, by, by removing the heart, the person dies. You're technically committing murder. Like, the person would die anyway. Like, like it's the, it's the well, assumption here, right? But, like, well, by removing the heart of the donor, they are, you are killing them. It's, I mean, the assumption is not that the person will die anyway, because you can keep them on a ventilator. Yeah. You can keep them alive, you know, by having them connected to a machine. Yeah. A lot of people don't want to do that. That's fine. But, I mean... My question here is, because I mean, he he just made that decision on the spot. Yeah. This girl came in with you know a head injury. Mm -hmm. He looked at her and then was like, mm, "I guess you're done for," and disconnected the ventilator. Yeah. And then took her heart again. Like, where's the consent? Where's the that, that, that can't be legal? Like, you come on. But in South Africa, I guess it is because it's it up is. to the surgeon to declare you dead. South Africa in the seventies was um, yeah. A wild ride. I don't know. I wonder if they changed the law after this because it's Dang it seems that. a little bit. It seems like one of those things that they they don't really like think about when they make the law because in like nothing happens for a while and it's like fine and then something yeah, like something this happens and they're like oh shit like maybe we should change that. Yeah. So that's that's the first heart transplant. Is this really legal? I guess we'll see. In 1982, after his own father died due to heart disease, Dr. Robert Jarvik designed an artificial heart, which was implanted in a patient. The patient then lived in the hospital for 112 days. The same type of heart, named the Jarvik 7, was implanted in more than 150 patients when their hearts were too damaged for other interventions or until donors were identified. So first, first artificial heart. Hell yeah. And we're making progress on that like every day too. Yeah, yeah. I also like the the little backstory that his own dad died due to heart disease. And yeah. He was like, I have to... I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. In 1998, the new immunosuppressants tacrolimus and mycophenolate were developed, which further improved patients' tolerance of transplants. The same year, the first hand transplant was performed in France. And in 2005, a partial face transplant was performed on a woman yeah. who suffered from a disfiguring dog attack seven months prior. I've seen, I've seen pictures of that. Yeah. And they're, they're, they've done more face transplants since that. Yeah. It's really impressive because the, like, the, the very first one I remember seeing, 
I remember seeing it, it was just like, oh, they didn't do a good job. But like they've obviously they've done mm-hmm. like alterations over time and like it looks perfectly fine. I haven't seen it, but I guess I'll I'll look at a picture. There are stories of like people who have like their because like if you're ever alone with a chimpanzee, you run because the chimpanzee will claw your face off. Because this happens like a lot, apparently, where yeah. chimpanzees will just like they'll take hold of your face why and they like just to do tear that? off your face entirely. What, why is that something that they do? I think they just don't like faces, oh God. other people's faces. That's horrible. Especially how people because when people look at each other in the eye, that's mm. usually a sort of like I'm connecting with you. Mm-hmm. We are on the level. Chimps chimpanzees like that. are like if you look at me in the eye, we are fucking fighting. And this I, is a friend. I will kill you. Yeah. There's a picture. God, this is again. I'm sorry, but I have so many tangents. There's a picture of an of uh, of an orangutan. No, uh, chimpanzee standing in water, holding out a hand towards the camera, uh, and like looking sort of lovingly into the camera, looking like, "Come swim with me." Mm-hmm. Um, chimpanzees can't swim, so w- when they stand in water, that's a sign of like, "I'm, I'm strong and I'm brave." Looking you in the eye is like, "I will fuck you up," and extending the hand is like, "We will fight. <laughs> fight me now." Mm-hmm. So it's like. To us, it looks like kindness, serenity. The chimpanzee wants to kill you. That's, that's an invitation to be drowned yes. by like a 200 pound... I don't even know how this is so heavy. I think this is actually... Because I remember also there was a girl, uh, a woman who got her face, off, her, fa- her face ripped off by a gorilla. The way this happened was she went to the zoo every day and looked longingly oh, yeah, yeah. into the eyes of the gorilla and thought, thought they were connecting. And the gorilla got so angry at this girl because <laughs> they hate when you make direct eye contact with mm-hmm. them. They, that's, that's like their... They hate it. <laughs> so uh, the, the... I think the zoo banned her from coming. No, she, she got her face tore off by the, by the gorilla. Oh, the gorilla did. escaped and like oh, tore shit. her face off. I think she, I think she survived. I think I remember, I remember reading a similar story where she, like a woman kept doing that and then yeah. she got banned from the zoo because the gorilla was so like upset every time yeah. she came. I mean, this probably happens like a lot too. Yeah. Um, we love anthropomorphizing animals. Yeah, don't. Yeah, They're... I have a lot of stuff to say about this, but I think we need to get on with the episode. Yes, we, we should have. Yeah, so that was a, a half, a partial face transplant and it was... It was like a turning point because until then, facial reconstruction was the only surgical options for patients like her. Mm -hmm. And reconstruction had both cosmetic and motor function limits. And patients with particularly complex deformities like her, you know, they're not always responsive to or eligible for these procedures. In 2010, a Spanish team performed the first full face transplant. Um, And it looks looks good. Yeah. I'm so, it's so like interesting to think about that this is such a young a yeah. field and like new things are happening like today as, today yeah. like as we are speaking because like yeah. you you know a lot of things about medicine i feel like have already been done mm-hmm. so it's just it's really like i'm in awe like when i read about this thing and i'm realizing that like there's so much that we still haven't done mm-hmm. and what's next well head transplants are another interesting type of transplant that scientists have been working on since 1922 oh mm-hmm. what <laughs> I've, I've heard stories about this but yeah continue. i'm not gonna go too much into it um but i will say that as of now no successful operations have been achieved because you know managing the body's nervous system is essential and also because each nerve has to be individually connected to the corresponding nerve of the receiver's body for the patient to be able to maintain control of their movement and receive sensory information. And that's no easy feat. Uh, lastly, the risk of neuropathic pain is high. And as of yet, it hasn't been addressed in research. There was a doctor in Italy a couple of years ago who said that he was going to do it. Yeah. 
There have been many, like quite a few doctors that are known for their like, like they really want to be the first to do it. Yeah, and I've 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 seen a lot of like sort of like medical, a lot of other people being like, don't, (laughs) because like everyone that I've heard talk about like people said like you might be able to do it, and the person might like live, probably not going to have control of their body, and also you they might be subject to a type of pain mm-hmm. that is like inconceivable that that's the yeah, neuropathic, yeah, the neuropathic yeah. which is like yeah that that is terrifying to me because yeah. imagining imagine that you've like i don't know you suffered like massive body trauma and you wake up because some, the, some doctor decided <clears throat> that <throat> they were going to and make an experiment on you no 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 you have a different a different body you're like the head you, you, oh they, yeah you it's the whole, head. whole right, head right 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 um I, i'm so stupid of course that's you, yeah you have the different body and you can't you can't move consciousness can't move your body in the brain. can't do anything weird you, you can't like you can't move around properly yeah and um and all the only sensation you have is just like hell yeah this. yeah that's like that's that's nightmarish yeah I think we're just not ready to do that yet. Um, I think it's also interesting. There's a lot of like ethics groups who are really staunchly against <clears throat> head transplantation. They're really calling it as like, you know, you're playing God, you're you're doing this. Um, but to be fair, that's what they said also in like the, the 1900s when people were transplanting organs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe it's just like a new thing that we do, but it's not necessarily like inherently worse in any way. Yeah. I think we just need to, we just need more research before we yeah. actually like do something like that. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things that we don't know about the nervous system. Yeah. Doctors can have a little play god as a treat <laughs> after they do their homework. Yeah, they've done it on dogs. Um, a lot of yeah, dogs, oh, but they died. They died, and they didn't seem happy. <laughs> they were pale and limp. We will live to see man-made horrors beyond, <laughs> beyond comprehension. comprehension. I think Soviet doctors, especially, really oh, they like. They did, yeah, they, they did. For some reason, Soviet doctors had like a like a hard on for head head so, transplantations because <laughs> they did it on dogs so much. I'm like, why do you? Why do you? Why do you do this? Why do you do this? Th- this is something that actually comes up a lot with like authoritarian regimes because a lot of democracy. People, has a lot of people lose their heads. <laughs> a lot of people lose their heads, but also like a lot of um, <laughs> democracy is shitty. It's awful. But uh, but the benefit of free speech and democracy is that when something happens, there is a there is an outrage. People will find out about it, and there's outrage, and that people will want to stop that from happening. Mm-hmm. That's a benefit. Uh, authoritarian states don't have that because mm-hmm. they control the media. Because <laughs> they control the media, which means that like doctors can do horrible things. Nobody will. Nothing find happens, out. Yeah. and then they can keep doing it. Yeah. So that happens. So even today, that also happens in like. Uh, in China, for example, I know that like a lot of Chinese doctors want to do gene editing mm-hmm. on fetuses, mm-hmm. just experiment essentially, just like try to see what they can do. The rest of the world has like these ethic- ethics boundaries to do things, and it's it's, it's weird. And transplant, like I, I don't know, th- this whole head transplant thing is rubbing me the wrong way. <laughs> I don't know, like some- something is scratching like my soul a little bit, like evil, evil, evil. <laughs> So appropriately, after this nightmare fuel, uh, let's talk about some ethical issues. There are a lot of ethical issues when it comes to transplants, as you probably can already tell, outside of uh, opening a portal to hell by doing extremely immoral acts. It should be said that a lot of the issues, the ethical issues that come up with organ transplantations are uh, rare, 
But that's mostly because organ transplants generally are kind of rare. It doesn't happen that often. So like mis mis misuse within the field is also kind of rare. Uh, so bear that in mind. The most common ethical concern has to do with allocation. Because sourcing organs is difficult and factory organs are not a thing yet in many cases. And so there is a long list, a long waiting list for getting an organ transplant. And who decides who should who should get an organ? Like let's say that a heart opens up on, on the list. Who who should get it? Because when you when you think about like an organ list, for a long time I thought of I very much thought of it like you know you start at the bottom and then you you wait and then when you're at the top you get a you, you get it, like a like a queue. But that's not really how it works, right? The the question is about like viability, how long the patient has waited how much longer the patient could be assumed to live mm -hmm. sometimes comes up in calculations. Even like distance to, to, the, to the donor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like, like geographic distance, because like the, the organ, the second the, the organ is no longer getting oxygen, it is getting worse. Yeah. So it needs to be close, preferably even in the same hospital. Yeah. So that's, this is sort of like a, a moral dilemma that doesn't really have an answer. The people who decide these things are often anonymous and oftentimes don't want to face the patients themselves that they're making the decisions about because that allows because that that can influence their decision if they if they have a face to the patients that need that need the thing but that also means that a lot of the time the sort of like transplant board will basically just have statistics and like reports from other doctors and that might not not give like a, a full picture. They do this in order to like maximize the efficiency of the organs that they have and to try to be fair to people who have waited a long time and like to, you know, to, to, to make the best of the organs that they have. But of course, this is a little consolation to those who never get an organ in time. And obviously, there's a lot of things to consider when you're on this list. You, you sort of get a score. Your age can influence this as well. Uh, also, the size of the organ itself, because, you know, if a kid dies, I mean, a kid organ, that's a small organ. It's not going to support like a, a big body. So like those things influence and also the success of the transplant itself too, because sometimes, you know, something could be like either someone who has a really big need for an organ could have it, but it's not a great fit. Like this heart would be better fitted to someone else who, who needs less. How do you, who do you, who do you decide gets it? Like bigger success, but like, it's, it's such a weird, complicated topic and there is no answer. Essentially every hospital has their own list and every nation has their own sort of criteria for how to how to order that list. So everything just sucks when it comes to allocation. <laughs> and everyone who does it also doesn't like doing it. But the big problem here, of course, is sourcing. There's a lack of organs. And that also has a lot of ethical issues. In many so-called developed nations, there are methods and systems set up to deal with transplants in a mostly ethical way. If a person dies, you know, of oftentimes it's an opt-out system with, uh, with option for family refusal. Meaning that a doctor can ask the family, hey, your, your family member who died has an organ that we kind of need. Could we have it? And the, and the, the patient's family has, a, has an option to say no. Uh, some countries are opt-in. You have to be like an organ donor. Um, I think. How about Sweden? It's, I think Sweden is opt-out, right? Like you so, have to tell them if you want to not be on the donation list. So, so or the donor list. So right now it's 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 opt-out with family refusal. But mm -hmm. if you're on the list, the family can't refuse. Okay. So that's how oftentimes how that's often that's why you need to sign up as an organ donor if you really want it because. You might want to be an organ donor, mm -hmm. but your family might not want to. Mm -hmm. So, but if you're if you're on the organ donor list, your family is can't like can't say shit. Can't say shit because you you said like no, I want my organs to go. So you you have 
you have your most power over your own organs. Yeah. And I think that's kind of beautiful yeah. in a way. Yeah. Uh, I'm on the organ donor list. Uh, I'm also on the list for donating, what if I call bone marrow? That's also like a separate list. Interesting. Um, every country obviously has its own sort of thing. And if you can, you should sign up for it because they'll never take your organs, first of all. They never come to your house and like steal your kidneys. Mm-hmm. And But if someone like needs your shit, they'll call you and be like, hey, could you come and like take a blood sample just to see if your, <laughs> like bone marrow is like good for us? But anyway, we we have a system for that, and like in many uh, Western nations, that's not the case all over the world though. A lot of nations have kind of vague legislation when it comes to sort of their own the way that they deal with organs, and this has led to something called organ tourism. Mm-hmm. This is essentially where rich Westerners go to developing nations and essentially like test a bunch of people like on their own. Like, without the government being involved. Little blood testing kit. <laughs> Little blood testing kit. Um, test a bunch of people and offer to buy organs from a potential match. This often does not supply patients with after-surgery care and frequently reduces life quality for the donors. Um, they also don't get, like, paid well. They get paid, like, fucking bubkis. Um uh, but this is something that like a lot of rich people just do, and they do it like very secretly. But it is something that is also that that's straight up organ trafficking. Technically not. No. Technically, it is a consensual purchase between two individuals. Mm-hmm. Technically, and this is actually why it's kind of complicated because the WHO, uh, the World World Health Organization, uh, has argued that this is exploitative. That, that this can that this is basically a form of organ trafficking. Uh, and they want everyone to ban it, and they want regulators to crack down on it everywhere. But this is a controversial topic. Not just from like rich Westerners, but also from people like in developing countries who are part of this industry. Because the one argument, the big argument is that like, this is exploitative, coercive, this is bad. But there is an argument that like a, um, a well-regulated market that ensures after-surgery care with strict boundaries on like exploitative practices, practices could help with the massive organ shortage that we have right now. And that by banning it, banning organ, like banning the practice of selling your own organs is itself a human rights violation because we have, we have bodily autonomy. Mm. Why should we be banned from selling organs yeah. if we want to? This is this, this reminds is what, me a lot yeah. of like pro uh, of, of um, for-profit like IVF, um, and like you know, people who travel to places like India and pay them like surrogates, pen- yeah, like surrogates, yeah. exactly Pro- for for profit surrogacy is what I mean, um, and and pay them much less than they would have to pay in, in their home countries, mm-hmm. like in the UK or the United States or Germany, whatever. And it's like a similar discussion where yeah. it is extremely exploitative, but also it help it solves the problem, I guess, and it also like the the money that those women get is. Is, is a lot and an alternative is them like starving or having to do other types of work that is maybe similarly mm-hmm. um, exploitative. It's one of those things that like everyone agrees that like exploitation is bad. But but there's no, the, nobody offers like a, a better alternative. Exactly. Right. It's like, but what, how do you, how else? Because it's either yeah. that or it's, they starve. They can't feed their families. Mm-hmm. They have to like go into sex work mm-hmm. they have to like go into like fucking slave labor and this is also it's also one of and similar arguments right are, are also used for like uh, like child labor in in some in some in many areas or like sweatshops in many areas yeah. so like yeah either they work in shitty conditions or they, or don't, they don't work, work at all home. yeah so it's like i don't have the answer yeah. for that like i generally don't know what like a good solution for yeah. this is I, it really doesn't sit right with me that no that is like 
I don't like that argument. Like, I don't like yeah, the argument of like, yeah. of like, well, if I don't give them money for and like take their kidneys, then they would starve. So actually I'm doing them a favor. I hate that argument. It's a, it's a really, really bad argument. But I also know that, yeah, the alternative is not better. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's bad. Right now, thankfully, most people are sort of in agreement that like organ, organ tourism is bad, mm-hmm. but there is like, there, it's, it, it is an ongoing thing, weirdly enough. Uh, but all of this, of course, could be solved if we just had artificial organs. If we can just grow organs. And you're going to talk about how that might happen. Well, I'm going to talk about what we mentioned a bit earlier <laughs> about the mad scientist types in this field. Because this field does have a lot of mad scientist types. And I'm going to talk about one case that happened just around the corner from where we record this podcast. And I think you've probably been very close. Because this happened at uh, Karolinski Institute oh. in Stockholm. Oh, shit. Um, wait, wait, when did this happen? In 2018, uh, like something like that. So this happened like not wait. too long ago. Um, <laughs> Holy shit, wait, because then, because I was at KI in 2018. Yeah. So. You may have heard about I this may happening. Have, yeah. I don't remember the name, but I but there was yeah. definitely like a huge scandal. A huge scandal. The entire board, by the way, of KI yeah, had to resign. I think I remember this. Yeah. Anyway, so what happened is. Uh, a man called uh, Paolo Macciarini. Mamma mia, he's Italian. <laughs> he created sort of uh, like the, the world's first synthetic trachea, which is kind of interesting, using um, stem cells taken from a patient's hip and incubated in a plastic mold. This kind of innovative, one of like world's first, and if you look at some lists, he's like, like, Big achievements in transplant, and it's like one of the lists. However, <laughs> but many of these synthetic tracheas came loose. Seven out of eight patients who came uh, to Paolo died as a result due to uh, this this like bad trachea implant. One famous case was a, a lady who who came in had a minor issue with her trachea, might not even have needed to get a new like an, a trachea transplant. But who, who Paolo said, like, you know what? I'm going to give you a new, new trick here. You don't need one, but I'll give you one um, to solve her issues. After, like, a couple of weeks, she started coughing blood, mm-hmm. like, a significant amount of blood, and like, like, getting it in her lungs. A horrible situation. And she had a hard time finding an appointment with oh Paolo. Couldn't get a hold of him. This um, is, I mean, this is also distracts, given the, the Swedish, like, healthcare... <laughs> I mean, was it? I mean, was it? This is. So, was she trying to get an appointment with him, like personally, like, or just like a healthcare, like? Get a hold of him personally, because this, this is. She was his, a very busy man. This is his thing. Yeah. Oh, you don't even know. So, like, she okay. She, eventually, she gets after I think after six weeks yeah. of coughing up blood, and like after get, just like experimental and, surgery, like, her loose trachea. Yeah. Um, she gets a new appointment and is told that like okay she. It's not, it's not sitting right. We're going to replace it. It's we're not gonna, sitting we're, right. We're going to do it again. We'll replace it. We'll do it fine. And she leaves. And then eventually she's got coughing blood again. And she dies, unfortunately, as a result of this. Mm-hmm. Um, during the autopsy, they never replaced the trachea. Yeah. They just put her under. Paolo here put her to sleep. And then and then didn't do anything. <laughs> he opened her up, looked at it. And then I was like, okay, hmm. whatever. Like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. As we're recording, he's currently sort of like 
disgraced. This became a huge scandal in Stockholm, by the way. There was like a mainstream news everywhere in Sweden mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire board of KI had to resign over this. The oversight board had to resign. A lot of people at KI, like high top, like this is one of the most famous uh, universities in the world, by yeah, the way, yeah. had to... Had well, to, medical universities. Yeah, medical universities. Had to resign. The, um, the Nobel Prize Committee for the Nobel Prize of Medicine had to resign yeah, because yeah. They, they work at KI. Yeah. So like, all of these people... Like accomplished medical scientists, none of them caught it. Yeah. None of them yeah. saw that he was basically a butcher. And as we're recording this episode on Sweden's National Day, by the way, June June sixth, he is currently the, the the trial is ongoing, and the verdict is going to be announced bef- when this episode is out. Ooh. So at, so like in the description of this episode, we can I guess tell what the yeah. what the verdict is. That's so interesting. That's a really good, yeah. like, very good timing. It's yeah. it's kind of it's weird to me because I I remember there being like a scandal when I was there. That was like Gigantic, that yeah. was I think the first year I was at KI, and I I feel a little embarrassed. I don't remember. I don't remember like knowing exactly what was going mm-hmm. on. I think partly it was me being a baby, <laughs> new in Stockholm, <laughs> yeah. like you know, like new degree. Had, it it like, may also have been like a bit earlier. It was, and it may, you may have gotten it right, right after it happened. I also remember there being like, when it first came out, I think it was a little hush-hush. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it just kind of like got, I don't know, I, I like didn't pay attention, I yeah. guess. But now, oh my God. Yeah, it's weird. This is like, this is like um, the Tuskegee experiment happening in like mm-hmm. your hometown <laughs> yes in your university but yeah um, like so so you know there there are a lot of mad scientist types in this in this field who, who do a lot of messed up stuff yeah also i don't know if it's really uh appropriate to compare i guess it's hard to compare medical experimentation disasters like that yeah but it's, it's, it's definitely difficult to compare but like doctor do bad things people die yeah like Evil is evil. Things that you think happened in like the 50s or the 60s and yeah. then don't happen anymore, they do. Yeah. Let's talk about what's coming up in the field of organ transplantation. So despite all the horrible medical experimentation <laughs> Uh, yes. events, cases that we talked about, organ transplantation has saved, improved, and extended countless lives. It's overall a good thing. Yeah. However, as we've also mentioned before, the field of organ transplantation is new and it's complicated and there's a lot of issues with it. It's ongoing. Yeah. It's ongoing. Uh, it has a lot of uh, problems, still, yeah. a lot of challenges. And the most important one being the lack of available organs relative to the number of people needing them. Mm-hmm. Another issue is the patient's immune response to the new organ. And currently, immunosuppressive drugs are taken post-transplantation, uh, which is a way to manage the problem. But this is a less than ideal solution as the drugs have to be taken indefinitely. And their effect is suppressing one's immune system, which means that the person is left immunocompromised for the rest of their lives. Mm, um, which might be relevant like in times of potential pandemics. Yeah, but I mean, th- I mean that leaves them at risk for developing like all sorts of fil- infections. Yeah, I mean all infections, sorts of things, yeah. but like cancer. Cancer is a very mm. uh, like it's it's a thing that commonly happens in patients who have received organs because mm. you know how your immune system like you always develop cancer. You, your that, immune system. I hate I know. that. I hate that I know. you always have cancer. Everyone always has cancer, and yeah, your immune system yeah. just deals with it and, yeah. until it doesn't. I it, hate that. And hate if that. you take immunosuppressive drugs, your immune system suddenly doesn't. Yeah, stop dealing with that. Um, so that's a common problem. Also, 
often, even despite the immunosuppressant drugs, the organ is rejected anyway. So it just it's it's very there's a lot of issues. One solution to this problem is the use of stem cells for functional organ generation. Stem cell therapy is already a reality, with stem cells being transplanted into injured tissue to replace lost cells. So far, memory glands in the prostate have been generated from a single adult tissue stem cell, which is a major breakthrough. That's um, a whole prostate? Yeah. This, <laughs> I mean, the, you, you, you get a whole human from a single cell. Well, yeah. from two cells, I guess. I guess, yeah. No, no, it's one cell. Is the it? egg and the sperm. That isn't... Fertilized. Are they taking? Is the are they two cells? I guess the egg is just one big cell. It's one big. Well, okay. Well, I would count it, it as two cells. Is a sperm? Because I'm like, is a sperm a cell? Yeah. Is it or is it? Is it? Or does the sperm just like inject its, its DNA? I think it, inje it just injects, injects some DNA. So the sperm the is egg, like which is one egg. The sperm is, is like cell. a virus more than anything else. I think, but I think so. <laughs> Cause, yeah, because I mean, the whole sperm doesn't go in. Fair from one cell. So far, memory glands and the prostate have been generated from a single adult tissue stem cell, which is a major breakthrough. This is an attractive strategy because it uses adult stem cells, which carries a low risk for tumorogenesis and does not have the ethical issues that embryonic stem cells do, mm. uh, do have, which we've talked about in the episode about uh, blood. Yes. Uh, however, the number of adult stem cells that can be isolated from the patient is a limiting factor. Yeah, because we don't have too many of them. Yeah, adult stem cells are a bit harder to get. Yeah. So it's a bit, you know, it, it works, but not you. Won't, I don't think you'd be able to like grow like a whole organ from it, like memory glands, the prostate. Those are pretty small. Yeah, or small organs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but that's that's one method. Mm -hmm. Embryonic stem cells have also been shown to produce whole organs by using a strategy of injecting embryonic stem cells from one species into the blastocyst of another species. The blastocyst is like it's like the what? what I, is I can tell that you you have no idea what a blastocyst is. I haven't. I, but I have no oh idea. Oh yeah. Um, I was like, huh? A blastocyst is like it's you know after like five day like five days post post fertilization. It's like the ball of cells. It's a very early stage oh, ball of cells. Oh yeah. So uh, you get the ball of cells of one species, and you genetically manipulate it to not develop a specific organ. Oh yes. And then you implant embryonic stem cells. And you make that to make one one specific organ, and, and the embryonic yeah. and the embryonic uh, stem cells compensate yeah. by like growing that organ. Which and that sorry, I have no idea how this works, but I want to speculate because I think I figured it out just from your description, and I think that's cool. Mm -hmm. um, is this how they make like how they grow like a rat? With an ear on it, or something. I think like that. so. I've seen that picture, and I'm not super sure which method they use. But I, I, if I had to guess, I would say it's this one. Yeah, like the, the <laughs> you're gonna end up with a rat with a whole human liver, yeah. which but I guess, is three but times you can, the size of like, the yeah, rat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you couldn't do like like organ organs. That rat would die. <laughs> it looked like like Tom and Jerry when like uh, Jerry like eats the cheese, yeah, and yeah, becomes yeah. a triangle, <laughs> but with a human liver. Yeah. So this method has been used to generate functional pancreas. Pan pancreases, pancreae, in mice that were unable to produce insulin using rat-derived embryonic stem cells. The researchers tested the pancreae, and they were fully functional rat pancreae inside mice. Is it pancreae? Pancreases? I think there's multiple plural forms. Okay. So they were fully functional rat pancreae, because they look different yeah. than mice pancreae. And the mice also showed no sign of diabetes, which they initially had. So the, the pancreae oh. actually like produced... The insulin. Yeah. 
That's great. Uh, the same technique has been applied to produce kidneys in mice using rat embryo or pluripotent stem cells. The kidneys were functional, connected to the ureters, and the bladders were full of urine. <laughs> Which I love that that's and they like... they were full of piss. And they were full of piss. I love how that's like a... Uh, that's like a check checklist thing. It's does, a sign that it works. Does it work? Yes. Yes. Functional? Yes. Connected? Yes. Full? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and from what I know... Here's the thing with this method. From what I know, uh, it's only been tested in animals. Also, because it uses embryonic stem cells, it has to meet strict scientific and ethical guidelines. Embryonic stem cells are always like a pain to work with. Yeah. So if this was to become reality, we would have to change... So many laws. So many laws regarding embryonic stem cells. Yeah. Another method also uses stem cells, but relies on the decellularization of matrix bioscaffolds first. Explanation for me, yes. <laughs> So first, you start you, like you start out with a donor organ, like uh -huh. a heart, liver, lungs, kidneys, or bladder, and you decellularize them to a biological scaffold material, and then you repopulate with the cells specific to the tissue of interest or with progenitor cell populations. So you use like a strong uh, detergent to basically kill off the cells making up the heart, but in what is left is like the skeleton of the heart, like like the. Um, Kind of like the the mat matrix okay. that like forms like it doesn't have the the cells anymore, yeah. but it, it's sort of um, like a shell, like a shell, yeah. the shell of the heart, and then you add the embryonic stem cells and um, it, like fills in the shell, and the embryonic stem cells popularize the shell and make like a new heart. Y'all scientists are up to some shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, a group of scientists did this. They uh, they washed away the cells. They were left to the scaffold. And then repopulated it with cardiomyocytes and aortic endothelial cells. They treated the heart with a special mix of factors, like growth factors, which told the cells to mature further. And then they observed rhythmic contractions at day four, pump function by day eight, and cardiac architecture. A bioartificial organ would solve the problem of having to rely on immunosuppressants. Additionally, the preservation of the initial skeleton of the organ would provide important signals for the cells used for repopulation. You wouldn't be starting from scratch. Mm. Like, because you already have the skeleton, it would be much easier for the cells to know like what they need to differentiate to. Mm -hmm. However, yeah. this method relies on having an organ to begin with, <laughs> uh, and we don't have a lot of those. So it's it, it also feels like a little bit... It feels almost like insulting that there's so few organs to begin with and you take it and you kill off the cells. Like you basically like... Yeah, you destroy it. You destroy it. You like put in a vat of acid to yeah. get rid of the cells, you know, because like there aren't... Yeah. Like it's such a valuable so you, thing. you'd still have to like make a heart somehow almost. And you need to start out with a heart. Yeah. Um, but this would be... This would help the problem of like immune, like immune response. Yeah. Mm. Which I guess is like, I, I mean, that, that, that is important enough. Like if they get, yeah. get this reliable going, then every time someone dies and donates a heart, they just put it in a vat of acid and they make a new one. Yeah. That's weird. I, I like that. That's weird science. I know. I love regenerative medicine. I think it's so interesting. Another method is the combination of stem cells with biocompatible polymer scaffolds. Initially, this was developed as a response to the lack of donor tissue, either as whole organs or as reconstructive grafts, like cartilage frameworks for total ear reconstruction. This method has been used for the construction of a polymer template in the shape of a human oracle, and that's the whole outer ear, mm -hmm. uh, which was then seeded with chondrocytes, uh, which are cartilage-forming cells. And the polymer scaffold degraded, but by then the cartilage has been formed. So again, it's like forming a... a polymer scaffold, putting cells 
that will like stick to the scaffold and like form form like a form a cartilage uh, skeleton in the shape of the scaffold. It's really cool. I'm I, I'm alternating really quickly between I understand completely and I have no idea what the <laughs> fuck is going on. Like there's there's <laughs> like I I'm either like I I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. You explain it. And then you talk about a new thing, uh-huh. but, and before the explanation of like the numbers start flying around, there's a lot of ter- there's a lot of <laughs> matrix. Take the matrix. There are a lot of medical terms, like, I'm, and I'm trying to tell you like what you're doing those a great mean, job. Because, but like, I know that you know. it's it's a lot of terms. It's a lot of terminology. So this system could be applied to the production of a proper vascular system, which would be useful for the reconstruction of vascularized organs. So you maybe you couldn't do this to to like form like the meat of an organ. Like the the heart, you know, yeah. like whatever inside. Uh-huh. But you but you could use it to form the to, the vascular system inside the heart. Mm. So this is more for like the. I mean, you, this you is know, more like a it's like a it, component uh, yeah, part of it. It's a component. It wouldn't form the whole heart, but yeah. it's an interesting method for yeah. that. It's, it's smart also because I feel like just figuring out the components also helps. Lot, yeah, for sure. You know. This method has a lot of potential, but the scaffolds using biomaterials are still in their early stages of development. So biomaterial science, again, is like also a little bit in its early stages. Yeah. Another strategy that I want to talk about is xenotransplantation, which is cross-species tissue transplants. The use of animal tissue has a pretty long history. We've, uh, we've mentioned some examples already. But, you know, blood has been transfused between animals and humans, like in the 17th to 20th centuries. Frog skin apparently has been used for skin grafts. In the 19th century. They still do that today occasionally. I don't know about that. I've, I know I've seen that. It, it actually works really well. Oh. Cool. I, I, I've, I've seen it weirdly enough. Like you, 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 together with some weird medicine, I've, I've seen people like add it on, like put it on burn, burn victims when they don't have like skin, like normal skin available. Or sometimes in like very specific conditions, it's actually better, I think. Huh. I've, it's weird. I guess. Frogs, always helpful. I guess it would be nice that the skin, because don't... When I think about frog skin, I think of it being very wet. Yeah. Like, maybe that's something to it. Like, maybe it's good maybe it's if good. it's, like, wet. Anyway. I honestly think that, because it's very porous. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that that helps. <laughs> so, frog skin and skin grafts. Um, and apparently a guy um, promoted the transplantation of slices of chimpanzee testes into yes. aged men whose zest for life was deteriorating. Yeah, they did this during marathons, too. Marathons? Yeah, uh, before before we had like uh, drugs, for, like performing performing enhancing drugs, uh, athletes would have their testicles uh, augmented with chimpanzee testicles to give them extra virility. What year was this? Oh yeah, like during this time, so like eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Well, it did not work. So uh, pigs are preferred as potential tissue and organ sources because they mature quickly, have large-ish litters, organs of similar size and function to humans and are domesticated and therefore easy to manage. Non-human primates, on the other hand, are smaller. They tend to give birth to one offspring at a time, as humans do. And because they are undomesticated animals, they tend to not fare well in controlled environments, which is something I already said before, um, a nightmare. And I think there's also just a lot more ethical uh, concerns around using primates for research. Pigs are a bit easier to get access to. And I think that's wrong. You think that's wrong? I think that's wrong. I think pigs are very smart. Because mm-hmm. I think the reason is because we think chimpanzees are smarter than mm-hmm. pigs because they're to closer humans. to us. Pigs are smart. Pigs are smart too. I think we should respect pigs. I don't really... Ha- I, I mean, I hate all animal 
experimentation, uh, like uh, research. Yeah. I think it's, I'm very much looking forward to a future where we can use like AI in computer models to simulate like, yeah. um, like drug, uh, drug effects mm-hmm. and like disease. I hate using any animal <laughs> for, yeah. for, um, exp- I- for like the research. I think it's going to be one of those things that, like, in a couple of hundred years, people will be like... They did what? They did what? Yeah. Yeah. So, just like regular, good old, regular transplantation, xenotransplantation triggers the immune system. But not only that, the body recognizes the transplanted tissue as belonging to a non-human species, and the organ recognizes the body as a different species, the latter setting out a defense mechanism called hyperacute rejection. Wait, so not only do you reject the organ, the, the organ rejects you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in a matter of minutes, because there are antibodies that naturally exist in the organ, and in a matter of minutes, those antibodies cause a cellular cascade that leads to lysis of endothelial cells, destruction of vasculature, edema, thrombosis, and hemorrhage. You, the, the word cascade is never good in a medical yeah. setting. No, it's the beginning of the end. Uh, One way to prevent this is by genetically altering the pig, specifically by inserting a small amount of genetic material into a fertilized pig egg that will be implanted in a sow. A sow? Sow. Sow. The genetic material replaces a gene coding for the antigen called GAL, which is the major xenoantigen causing hyperacute rejection. And that kind of fixes it. However, while GAL is a very reactive antigen, it's not the only one. And research is still being done to identify and develop methods to get rid of the other ones. When you said genetically altering pigs, mm-hmm. I for a split second thought you were talking about like man pigs, <laughs> like a like a little bit. Like we make them more human, and then the rejection becomes less. I'm happier now. There's just like a little antibody change. Another potential issue with xenotransplantation is the presence of pathogens, particularly viruses, and the potential of them adapting for human to human transmission. Mm. In particular, porcine endogenous retroviruses. PERVs, for short, (laughs) have been of particular concern because they can infect human cells and because they cannot be removed from the source animal's genome. So they're already like... They're in there. They're in, yeah. I I remember there was a case researching this where like a pig heart was transplanted into a human heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, Into a human body. Into a human body, yeah. And the, 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 the recipient died because of like... PERVs. PERVs. Um, I haven't read too much about like actual cases, but I do know that they're doing studies on mm. it. Um, and from what I can see, retrospective studies of humans exposed to pig tissues or organs have not found evidence of perv infection. Okay. So I don't know. Maybe it's not perv. Maybe some other type yeah. of thing that killed this person. In any case, animal pathogens can be dangerous yeah. and. This is a cause of concern when you when yeah. you you know when you have like <laughs> close exposure to animals, just being in close proximity to them can cause a lot of trouble. Literally, Taking, why we have COVID. Literally, why we why we had why we have COVID. Taking like a, a an animal organ and putting it inside a person, <laughs> you can like there's a lot of uh, potential for issues yeah. arising. So there's research done on that. You are closer to that. To that pig that no one has ever been. Yeah. yeah. But that is the future of uh, of organ transplantation. I didn't expect this section to be so long, but I guess I, I got a little carried away. It's a good section. I just really, I, f- I think that... Um, Do not apologize for this section. It's great. Yeah. 
I think this, this kind of field is really, really interesting. So this was our episode on organ transplantation. Do you feel like your knowledge has been transplanted? Yeah. I also, do you know what? I wanted to recommend a book. Oh. I have a book to recommend. Do we, have, we did the last time too. We have book recommendations in the podcast now. Yeah. The book is called Heart of a Dog. It's by uh, Mikhail Bulgakov. He's a very, very famous Russian author. And the book is about uh, xenotransplantation. Actually, it's about a dog getting a transplant from a human. Because <laughs> it's like, it's supposed to be like an experimental yeah. uh, surgery kind of thing. And the dog starts developing personality traits that the human used to have. Oh, I love fiction like that. I know. It's very, very sci-fi. And it's also very... If you're a fan of Russian literature, this book is for you. Uh, because it's just delightfully, incredibly... Like, it's Russian in the best sense of the yeah. world. It will take four pages to describe the color of a, of a bookcase in the, <laughs> in the room. The color of the dog's eyes. The color of the dog's eyes um, goes on for 10 pages. No, but it's it's very funny and it's very like, it's it's a, it's a delicious, tasty, ju juicy, succulent book. A succulent book. Yeah. Succulent and juicy are not words that I would typically associate in an episode in about transplants. <laughs> but I like it. It's nice. Cool. So it's like a very interesting book. Did you feel like you learned... A lot. God, yes. Episode. I don't know any. I didn't know anything about transplants since I started this. And I'm, I'm lucky that we also got a little, like, Stockholm shade. Stockholm shout out. Stockholm shout out about, like, mad doctors doing uh, obscene, like, medical violations. Yeah. I like that. I like that. All right. If you enjoyed this episode uh, and you enjoy us, <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy us. Uh, do consider supporting us on Patreon. It helps a lot. It does. Uh, encourages us to keep doing this. If you cannot or do not want to support us on Patreon, consider writing us. Yeah. That helps a lot. And, uh, you know, sharing on Twitter, telling your friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't pay to advertise the podcast at all. So we only go by word of mouth. So tell, tell your dog <laughs> uh, who has human personality traits tell about your, the podcast. Tell your dog like what's going to happen if he doesn't behave. Oh my God. Tell your pig. Uh, tell, your, tell your twin that if things go wrong, you have a backup organ. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.